Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and the blessing of being together. I thank you so much for my brethren who are here and that, Lord, we have the awesome opportunity even now to open your word. Pray that you would teach us. I pray that we might remove distractions from our minds that keep us from focusing upon your word. And I pray that we might be people who see beautiful things from your word today that would challenge us uh, to live our lives in a way that glorifies your great name here on this earth. We continue to pray for Abby Boldy and for the Boldy family, uh, Father, and for those who are hurting in our body, that, Lord, you would continue to sustain people and grant them the great comfort that comes from you. You are the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we would be able to come alongside of others and comfort them with your comfort. Lord, what a wonderful grace that is. I pray that, Lord, um, anyone, anyone who is hurting even this morning in this body and in the boldies as well, that you would grant them just a great measure and a sense of your presence in their life, that you love them, that you see, and that you care. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Psalm 90, Psalm 90, we will be coming back to uh, Colossians chapter 3, January 15th, um, uh, to deal with the um, relationship between parents and children. But um, I didn't want to jump into Colossians for one sermon, and then for three Sundays, we're going to be dealing with Christmas messages and New Year's and then a Vision Sunday. So that would mean that we wouldn't uh, deal with the other part of that relationship, children, until a month from now. So I'm going to go into Psalm 90, which is a very fitting psalm for where we're at as a body right now, and even for your encouragement and my encouragement. Um, the title of the message is Making Your Life Count. Making Your Life Count. Well, I don't know, as you think about those people who have uh, mentored you or people who have impacted your life, um, what, what is it about those people, uh, perhaps I might ask, that maybe... Um, encouraged you, that stands out about those particular mentors or disciplers that really impacted you? Um, for me, I know that there were a number of things um, that I, as I look back at those people who have invested into me, um, as I look back, um, I, I think about their, their uh, holiness, that they were like Christ. And um, I wanted to be like Jesus, so following them made all the sense in the world to me, right? want to be more like Jesus, you follow people who are like Christ, um, their character. There was character uh, about these mentors and disciplers that I wanted to emulate. Um, there was uh, certain qualities that I wanted to emulate about them. Maybe their energy, maybe their joy that would exude from their lives, maybe their relational approach to people, their heart of outreach toward other people really drew me to these mentors. Um, the other thing was knowledge of God and His Word. There were may, many theologians that have invested into me uh, people who thought deeply, men and women, who thought deeply about God and His Word. And so I, I clung on to those people who taught me those things and taught me um, uh, how to then take the Word of God and teach it to others in a way that would encourage them and that would comfort them. Um, for all of us, there are things that we can think about regarding the, uh, uh, these mentors, these disciplers that uh, drew us to them. But there's one other thing that I personally appreciated um, and that impacted me about people that have invested into me. And that is the, the calm serenity, maybe you might say, and the seriousness um, with which they lived their lives. Um, certainly with joy, but there was this seriousness and just this calm trust in God. And that came um, largely because of their own experiences, having lived a lot of their lives, having um, gone through some difficult experiences, some hard knocks in life, and they had learned some lessons uh, from those experiences, life-changing lessons. And it was those things that I love to hear about that people have gone through and the struggles they've gone through that drew me to them and that taught me that, hey, if they could learn from their mistakes and their sins and build on that, then I want to cling on to people like that as well and learn from my mistakes and um, my experiences that I go through. I believe that after the Word of God, beloved, um, life experience can be the greatest teacher right? Certainly not all life experience. We don't have to go through life experiences to be wise. But if you do go through, the, through some of those hard knocks and you learn from them, that's actually a very good thing. And um, if there was ever a man that you can look at scripture who could teach us much about making our lives count, it was Moses. 
Moses, the man of God, as Psalm 90 calls him. He is my favorite character after the Lord Jesus, of course, in the scriptures. And he writes Psalm 90, uh, reflecting and contemplating back at his own life journey and the journey of the nation of Israel. Moses was a man who experienced much during his lifetime. Um, And yet, what is more important is that Moses experienced God himself. Moses didn't just know things about God. Moses knew God personally, experientially, if you will. He saw God as no man had ever seen God. Moses saw God's power at work in the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, imagine those mo- the moments where those miracles were performed and, and Moses gets to see the great power of God displayed in those miracles. Moses experienced the holiness of God and a sense of the fear of God when he heard the, the voice of God with thunder and lightning and smoke on, on Mount Sinai. Moses witnessed the amazing wisdom and the holiness of God in the, as God gave him the Ten Commandments and the law. Moses could tell us of God's goodness and his love in the wilderness as God continually provided for a people who would constantly be grumbling and complaining, and yet he was gracious and loving and good to the Israelites time and time again. But Moses also knew God as the God who disciplines, the God who is judge in his own life and in the life of the Israelites. Moses buried more people, beloved, and did more funerals than any of us ever will. Think about that. Many of the people that Moses counseled and cried with and prayed for and died uh, and prayed and, and he was there with them, meeting their needs and serving them, died in the wilderness due to their sin and their rebellion. Many of them did. And this is kind of the background of him writing Psalm 90. He's contemplating his life, contemplating the, the wiping out of most of the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, the death of Miriam now, the death of Aaron his family members, and other people that he loves. And he's looking back now, and he has some some things that he's reflecting upon and contemplating regarding his own life journey and the journey of the Israelites. And so he pens Psalm 90, probably the oldest psalm in the Psalter, since it's Moses who wrote it. And this psalm, Psalm 90, is is a psalm of corporate lament on behalf of himself and the people. But it's also a psalm of hope. For the people. For Moses understands and knows one thing about God, and it is this that God is a loving and gracious God, a God who is good, a God who forgives, a God who extends his loving kindness to his people. Even amidst their rebellion, he continues to pour out his mercy and his compassion upon his upon his people. And so the question that I want us to answer this morning is this. What does this man of God tell us about his God, who is the same God that is our God? What uh, life-changing lessons has Moses learned that we can learn from and that we can glean from, that we must keep in mind if we are to make our short lives on this earth count for the glory of God? How many of us don't want to make a difference on this earth? For the glory of God. How many of us don't want to leave a lasting impression on this earth for the glory of God? Most importantly, how many of us don't want to see the face of our maker someday and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. How many of us don't want that? And so as Moses reflects upon his life journey and that of the nation, he teaches us these lessons by way of Psalm 90 that we may make our lives count for God. And I want to give you four life-changing lessons, okay, from Psalm 90. The first one is this. Be amazed that God is eternal. Be amazed that God is eternal. Look at verse 1. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses begins here by affirming the eternality of God. 
The fact that God has always been, and notice that he calls him Lord, capital L, little O-R-D, which is the name Adonai, which means eternal ruler, sovereign creator. Moses, right off the bat, affirms that before anything was created, earth, stars, moon, living creatures, God was. Before there was anything visible to the human eye, to any creature, God was. Before Adam and Eve and the six days of creation, God was. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. This is the first verse recorded uh, in the Bible because it is the beginning of redemptive history, but not the beginning of God. He has always been and always will be. He is from everlasting to everlasting God. Moses, beloved, begins with God's eternality for a reason. Because when you think about the, 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 the journey of the Israelites, and you read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and you read of the history of the Israelites, there's something that you notice, and it is the, the transient nature of the nation's existence. They were constantly on the move. The nation, uh, during Moses' lifetime, never found a home. They moved from place to place. They never found stability, security, permanence. And when Moses considers this, perhaps he would be tempted to despair, for he has seen a lot of changes during his lifetime. He himself has never known stability or permanence. He's never been able to lay down his roots, nor the nation under Moses. But Moses knows better, doesn't he? He knows that this world is not his home. This world is not his home. And there is, for Moses, one constant in this universe. And that is the eternal God. The one who is, has always been, and always will be. Moses says, you, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. We may have never had a geographical location to call home, but you, Lord, are our permanent home. Moses affirms this, that the eternal God is their home. Beloved, I would say the same thing to us. And so would Moses via this psalm. This world is not our home if we have trusted Christ. It's not our home. It is a changing world. A challenging world, a broken world. In fact, challenges and changes on this earth will always be a reality. But there is a greater life-changing lesson that you and I must keep in mind if we are going to live our lives for the glory of God and make our lives count. And it is this. God is the unchanging constant in this life and in the one to come. Past this present world. That brings great, great comfort, does it not? How amazing that we have Him. If we are in Christ, history teaches us that kingdoms come and go, people come and go, movements come and go, fats come and go, beauty comes and goes, the things you and I place so much value upon on this earth come and go, they will burn, but God has always been and always will be. He is from everlasting to everlasting God. No beginning and no end. In a broken world, In a world full of trials and suffering, it is tempting for us to take God out of the equation, right? To forget that that God is is with us. Didn't Jesus say in in the upper room to his disciples and all future disciples that he was going to to go to his father's house where there are many dwelling places to prepare a place for us who have trusted in him? In my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. How comforting that is. How amazing it is that in times of trial and suffering, beloved, God wants, listen, God wants our theology, what we know to be true about God, to be applied to life on this earth. He wants our theology to be practical, that we apply what we know about Him to the darkest moments of life. To not forget the the one who does not change. The one who is immovable, unshakable. 
God who is not subject to decay or deterioration, who doesn't slumber or sleep or, or turn his face the other way so that he's surprised at the circumstances of our lives. Oh no, be amazed that he's our eternal rock and our foundation and our present help in time of trouble. God is dependable and trustworthy in the deepest times of adversity. Amen. That's who he is, beloved. Be amazed this morning at the life-changing reality that God is eternal. And that no matter how bleak things in this world may seem, the eternal God is ever with us. And we will spend time eternal, eternally with Him if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. How amazing is that in the midst of the transitoriness of life, right? Secondly, building on this, be humbled that God is in charge. Be humbled that God is in charge in verses 3 through 6. I want you to observe in verses 3 through 6, God's absolute authority over the lives of men and women alike. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 3. Moses uh, petitioning before God, You, God, turn man back into dust. And implied, You say, Return, O children of men. I mean, who does that? Who is able to, by the word of His power, order people to go return to dust? Only the eternal God can. Only he can. Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away. The them is humanity. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. All of these verses are clear that God has absolute authority over temporal man, over temporal humanity, that God is in charge, that he who by the word of his power breathed into man the breath of life, by the word of his power, beloved, orders, orders man back to dust. Job 121 says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives life. The Lord takes life away at his own appointed time. No one has this kind of power. No one has this absolute control and sovereign authority over humanity. Only God Almighty does. Only he does. See, we think that we are in charge. That we are in control of our lives. But we're deceived. Moses says that uh, here that our days are determined by God. According to his divine prerogative, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Even with regards to our own lives. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Humans can't do that. Humans can't do whatever they please. We have limitations, do we not? Even with regards to to time. We're limited by a certain amount of time. All of us get the same amount of time and we accomplish what we're able to accomplish within that restricted amount of time. But Moses makes the point here that God is not bound by time as we are. In fact, from God's perspective, time is a non-factor. Look at verse 4. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. (laughs) A thousand years is a long time, right? I mean, for those of you who read history, a lot of stuff has happened in the last thousand years. But for God, it's like yesterday when it passes by. Or as a watch in the night. Who remembers yesterday? Listen, I can't even remember what happened this morning, for crying out loud. (laughs) Right? You get, right? Yesterday went by so, so fast, how brief it was. We don't even remember what happened. So it is a thousand years to God. To God, a thousand years, according to verse 4, are like a watch in the night. A watch in the night was a three to four hour period of time in the middle of the night. I got four and a half hours of sleep last night. It went by so fast, I felt like I didn't even get any rest. It went by so fast. That's how quickly time flies by. Three to four, four and a half hours. That's how a thousand years are to God. 
Because our life is in God's hands. Life is fragile and we are vulnerable before God, right? Look at verse 5. You have swept them away. The them is the children of men, the humanity, if you will. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. God's power and control over humanity, listen, is so great that he sweeps humanity away, he says, like a flood. Think about a flood, overpowering and unavoidable. Nothing can stand in the way of a flood, right? There's nothing that it won't consume and sweep away. You remember the the tsunamis a few years ago? And the frightening images of those tsunamis snatching people and big structures away suddenly and swiftly and forcefully without notice. Well, Moses says, like a flood, God is able to sweep away man's life suddenly and, and swiftly. That's how fragile we are. That's how vulnerable we are. And yet we think that we are in control, right? That we are so mighty. Recently, a famous boxer passed away, and I grieve that he didn't know the Lord. But for decades, you heard from this man's mouth, before his boxing matches, during and after, the words, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And then sadly, over the years, you saw him deteriorate in his physical health, right? And eventually, just a few weeks ago or months ago, he died. He died. He passed from death to death, unfortunately. He wasn't a a believer. He didn't give his life to Christ. See, but for years, he boasted and he was proud. I am the greatest. Beloved, that is a perfect illustration of of the the vanity of going after things. You need to live your short life, your brief life for the glory of God, rather than for those types of things. Because life is fragile. We are vulnerable before the eyes of God. And here in verses 5 and 6, morning and evening are our metaphors for the brevity of life. Man's life is so brief that Moses says it is like grass, which one minute springs up beautiful, green, luscious, right? And then the city of Burbank says you can only water your grass once a week, so then it dies, right? The next day and withers. That's how life is. C.H. Spurgeon said, here is the history of the grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. See, through all of these illustrations and metaphors, Moses' point is that man's life is, is transient. It is temporal when viewed through God's perspective. And how easy it is for us to forget that when we're young, Right? The younger that we are, the harder it is to to forget about how fragile we are. But when we're young or younger, we think that life will always continue as it is now. That you will always have as much energy as you have now in your youth. That we can live life how we want now. And later, begin to live for God. Listen, this can be a a destructive and, and damning sin. To presume upon God that way. To make your plans and not look for God to establish your plans and acknowledge God in the plans. Especially when you're younger. To bring them before Him. We are warned in James 4.13 against this type of mindset. Of not acknowledging God and keeping Him first as the, as the center and the circumference of everything that we do. James 4.13 says this. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Nothing wrong with planning, right? And the Proverbs tells us to plan, to have foresight. What's wrong with you, James? Yet, he says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. He's talking to people who have all of these plans, but they don't acknowledge God in their plans. He says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So what's the solution? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Acknowledge Him in your plans. Keep, it, keep God 
first. But he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. To presume upon God that way. To not keep Him at the center of your life. See, in our arrogance and our pride, we, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can make plans and then we can, God is subject to our plans somehow. Death is an impartial visitor to us all, right? It's an impartial visitor, beloved. We simply cannot live that way because we don't know what tomorrow will hold. Simply don't know. Death doesn't ask to be invited. Death doesn't give you a 30-day notice. I'm coming in 30 days, so get do everything you need to do to prepare yourself, right? Death doesn't tweet you ahead of time or text you and let you know it's coming. It comes unexpectedly and, and suddenly. Our own testimony as a church, we've borne witness to that, haven't we? In the last few years, how many saints have passed away? How many saints have gone home to be with the Lord, having lived long lives, 60s, 70s, 80s, some in their 90s? That the Lord has taken home from a human perspective with some degree of notice. But there are others much younger that God has taken unexpectedly. We simply don't know, right? In my own experience, my mother died when I was seven years old. She was 24 years old. 24 years old. Who knows, right? I remember um, the passing away of my brother. In 2002, 24 years old he was. The prime of his life. Strong as an ox. Smart as can be the young man. A whole future ahead of him from a human perspective. God took him home. Remember a little girl, a little girl, a daughter of friends of ours, going to a party for one of her sisters and being there and seeing this little girl who was seven years old, healthy and sound. And just a few months later, within the period of six, six weeks to two, to, to two and a half months, she was on bedridden and the Lord took her home. She was a believer, seven years old. We simply don't know, beloved. It is arrogant and, 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 and proud for us to live with God not at the center considering what He wants for our lives. We simply don't know when it will be our time. Listen, the certainty and the suddenness of death should remind you and I that we are not in control. God is in charge. He holds our life, my life and your life in the palm of his hands. And so the question this morning from me to you is this. Is God first in your life? Are you living for him? Are you making your life count for the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth? See, this is what many of us have done. We've given, we've taken a blank piece of white paper and we have written all of our plans and our aspirations and our priorities and our goals and our pleasures and everything that we want. And we say, God, here you go. Give me your blessing. May your favor be upon my plans and what I want and my priorities. And God says, no, 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 no. You give me a blank piece of paper and I write out what the purpose of your life is for my glory, not your glory. He's in charge. God wants a blank sheet of paper, beloved. He wants to, to write out your life. And the heart of humility recognizes this. The heart of wisdom recognizes that God is in charge and He calls the shots. And you and I follow and we trust Him because at the end of the day, not only is He working for His glory, but for our utter good. For our joy and our peace and our satisfaction in Him so we can trust Him with our plans. See, Moses, as he reminisces, he's learned this life-changing lesson. That God is in charge. God is in charge. Thirdly, be warned that God is holy. Be warned that God is holy. In verses 7 through 11. The Israelites, when you think about their own experience and their own journey, personally experience discipline for their sin. Think about their, 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 their sojournings. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness because of their rebellion and their sin. I told you that Moses buried more people and did more funerals than any of us ever will. Most of the first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, 
died in the wilderness because of their sin. And we might ask, why? Why did God do this? Was, was it because God is some ogre who delights in arbitrarily punishing people without cause or purpose? Is God like us, human beings, who are impulsively vindictive and retaliatory when somebody wrongs us and so we come after people? God, beloved, is not like us. He disciplined His people because He is holy. He's holy. And just, and His holiness requires for Him, it's the natural, necessary response of a holy, majestic, glorious God who is just to punish sin. Otherwise, He cannot be holy and He cannot be just. Listen, God's righteous anger and wrath is the natural and necessary response to our sin in the light of His glory and holiness. He must punish sin. Otherwise, it is an affront to His character. He is not just. He is not holy. His holiness requires it. And the nation knew this. Moses experiences. Look at verses 7 through 11 and note the, the references to wrath and anger and fury given here. Verse 7, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. And why? For no reason. Look at verse 8. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. In other words, we were exposed before you in our sin. And that's why God poured his wrath upon them and his anger because of their sin, their iniquities. In verse 8, and their secret sins that were exposed before God. And what were the consequences of their sin? Verse 9. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. In other words, like a whisper. Like a whisper. Nobody went out with a bang. They went out with a whisper. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Literally, the fear of you. Notice five times in these verses the, the words wrath, anger, fury appear to, to describe God's righteous and necessary and required indignation against the nation's sin and rebellion. Time and time again. Because of their sin, because of their iniquities, their days were like a sigh, like a whisper. The word sigh in verse 9 refers to man's weariness at the end of his life. The nation had reaped, beloved, the consequences of what they had sown. And in their case, they averaged 70 to 80 years of life. Moses, 120 years. Maybe this seems like a long life to us, but Moses, part of the point that Moses is making here is there was no satisfaction, little sense of fulfillment, little sense of meaning and purpose for, for most of these Israelites because of their iniquities and their sin. Their pride was but labor and sorrow, he says. What was the heart of the problem? What was the heart of the problem? Well, as Moses contemplates God's holy judgment against the nation, he asks a rhetorical question in verse 11, right? Look there. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the what? Fear that is due you. The rhetorical question is designed to get the answer to a specific answer, namely, no one. No one rightly understands the extent of God's anger and fury so as to fear Him as He deserves. And to fear God is to revere Him, to stand in awe of Him because of His infinite glory and majesty, and to ascribe praise and adoration to Him, to be devoted to Him. The heart of the problem, beloved, for the Israelites was that, was that they did not fear God. They failed to fear Him. If they would have feared Him, they would have been wholeheartedly devoted to Him and walked in loving obedience to Him and trusted Him and His provision for them. 
And listen, the same goes for us. If you and I want to make our lives count for God, then you and I must remember that God is holy. And He is to be feared. Because He's holy, we cannot live our lives as we wish and not suffer the consequences of our own sin. Our own sin. Too often, too often, for us as believers... It is our desire to see a loving and gracious God. But we don't see the, f- the fullness of who God is. That he, all, he also has righteous indignation and utter displeasure with our sin, even secret sins that others may not know about. God is angry at those sins that are unrepentant of. Listen, you want to know the magnitude of God's holiness and the magnitude of His justice? Look at the gospel. Look at the gospel. What happened at the cross? God, the Father, poured His wrath upon His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, satisfied the wrath, His own wrath, for our sins upon His own Son, the Son of His love. That is the extent of the holiness of God. You are not sitting in here this morning, beloved, for you who are followers of Jesus Christ, forgiven and reconciled before God because God swept your sin under the rug. Uh Uh-uh. God poured His wrath for your sins upon His own Son who was innocent and perfect and blameless. He did not sweep our sin under the rug. Christ took the punishment for our sin. He paid the price for our redemption so that when you and I trust in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. The same God who crushed His Son for our sins is the same God that now believers call Abba Father. Abba Father. He is a holy God, isn't He? Who will punish sin. Because His holy nature requires it. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. Otherwise, He cannot be just and holy. So He poured His his wrath upon His own Son. This is why for some of you who are sitting in here who have not committed your lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, the first step for you in, in living your life with meaning and purpose is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ is the one who qualifies as the perfect sacrifice approved by God so that you might trust Him and be forgiven of your sins. And that is where the life of meaning and purpose for the glory of God begins. Surrendering your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And for the rest of us who are children of God, we must be warned that God is holy. And that we are to still fear Him. Because now as our Heavenly Father, He will discipline us as His children, will He not? Because He loves us. Because He wants what is best for us. He will discipline us when we need it. And so we must fear our Heavenly Father in this new relationship that we have with Him. Solomon was quite a wise man, wasn't he? Quite a wise man. The wisest man who ever lived, and yet he didn't seize upon his wisdom that he had to flesh it out in his life. He went and lived it up. And when he got to the end of his life, these were his words to you and to me. What does life come down to? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion, says Solomon, when all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. Every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Every single person will stand before his or her maker, and God will judge the good or the evil. Solomon says, live your life in the fear of God, obeying his commandments. Listen, there are two kinds of people in life, right? There are the kinds of people that need to go out and experience sin and wickedness to learn their lesson. Or there are people who listen to the wise words of a Solomon who had all of the riches that you ever want times a million 
All of the possessions that maybe think will get you satisfaction, all of the pleasure that you think will satisfy you, all of the comfort, all of the security, all of the friends, all of the acquaintances that you want, all the popularity, all the fame that you want. He had it all. And he says, none of it matters. At the end of the day, what matters is fear God and keep his commandments. This applies to every person. Fear God. Fear God. God is eternal. He's in charge. He's holy. But fourthly, be comforted that God is gracious. Be comforted that God is gracious. Verse 12 really is the heart of the psalm. Notice verse 12, what he says. So, so, little word that has so much significance. Because it points back to the first 11 verses. So, God, in other words, God, in the light of the fact that you are the eternal creator and that we are transitory and temporal, that you hold our lives in the palm of your hand, you order people to return to dust, you're holy and you will discipline us. So, in light of those great realities, life-changing truths, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us. This is a passionate Fervent plea for Moses, who's lived life and experienced the good and the bad. He's, to number our days means to take special care how we live each day of our life. To number them carefully. To use them wisely. That in the light of eternity and the, and the brevity of life, we realize that our days are numbered. And that we want to make our lives count for the glory of God on this earth. This is the heart of wisdom, you see. This is the the life that is not a wasted, squandered life. It is the essence of what Ephesians 5.15 says. Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise. And how does a wise person live? Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Make the most of your days, your numbered days. Colossians 4, 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity or redeeming the time. This is the, this is the heart cry of Moses, and it should be our heart cry as well. Lord, in light of how short life is and the brevity of my life, please help me not to squander and waste my life. Someone wise has written this, one life to live will soon be past. Only what is done for Christ will last. One life to live will soon be past. Only what is done for Christ will last. Listen, beloved, make the most of your life now for the glory of God. Don't waste your life. He said, but you don't understand how bad I've blown it. Listen, God is gracious. He's forgiving He's kind. He's good. No one is ever out of the reach of the grace of God, be it for the salvation of your soul or you as a believer in patterns of sin that you need to repent of. God is gracious and abounding in loving kindness and truth, isn't he? There's always hope in him. Making your life count is possible. Not because you and I have not made mistakes or sinned in the past or present or we will sin in the future, but because God is a gracious God. And and Moses knows this, so he pleads with God. Look at verse 13. He says, says, Do return, O Lord. That is the name Yahweh with all capitals, L-O-R-D. The name Yahweh, the personal name of of God, His covenant-keeping name, the name that points to God's steadfast, loyal, committed love for you. Yahweh, how long will it be? Be sorry for your servants. In other words, turn from your just displeasure, O Lord. Relent from your punishment against us. Why can Moses pour his heart out before God? It's because he knows that God will respond to a broken sinner. He will. Look at verse 14. He pleads that God would be their satisfaction. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. 
Here's the basis of God's turning back from his wrath and anger, according to Moses. It's his loving kindness, his chesed, his, his steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love, his committed love, his unconditional love. He says, oh, satisfy us with that chesed, that loving kindness, that covenant-keeping kind of love. You see, only because God can love this way is it possible for him to grant them gladness and joy and happiness. The happiness and the joy and the gladness, beloved, that sin can never, ever, ever get you. Any of you. Sin never satisfied anyone who died of the Israelites and went to hell. Sin never satisfied them. God's loving kindness would have satisfied them. Moses says, Satisfy us with your loving kindness. And then look at verse 16. He pleads that God's majesty may be revealed to them and to future generations. He says, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Listen, Moses longs for God's favor upon the nation again, that they would see his works, but also that future generations would behold the majesty of God. God was, was most, or Moses was most concerned that, that God's majesty would be cherished and treasured by future generations. Yes, he wants the best for his people at that point when he's writing, but more than that, he wants future generations to behold the majesty of God. He says, oh God, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Then notice how he ends in verse 17. He, he pleads that God would grant them meaning and significance. Permanence, if you will. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. He, he repeats the word confirm there twice. Has the idea of give permanence to. Meaning, significance, stability to our lives. He petitions for God's blessing and favor upon them. Listen, only the eternal creator could grant this petition and request. The psalm ends really where it began. It began with the eternality of God. And it ends with an affirmation that only the eternal, constant one is able to grant them permanence and meaning and, and significance. Why? Because he's a gracious God who grants favor to people who do not deserve his blessings. But this won't happen for any of us unless we plead like Moses, right? Unless we plead Oh God, grant significance to my life. Help me to keep you at the center that you might be first, the center and the circumference of everything that I do. Oh God, allow that to be true of me. Listen, have you wasted your life? Have you squandered your life to this point? There is hope for you because there's a gracious God who forgives by faith in Christ. What about you, believer? Do you have regrets this morning? Choices that you wish you could take back? Patterns of sin that you wish you would not have gotten engaged in or, or sins that you have committed that you need to repent of? God is gracious. And if you come broken over your sin as an offense against your heavenly Father, He will forgive you if you come to Him with a broken heart, repentant over your sin. Oh, how beautiful it is for us as believers to remember this. That not only were, are, are we as believers, were we saved by grace, by God's undeserved favor and kindness, but we are kept by grace, are we not? Preserved by grace. We don't deserve his forgiveness, but he lavishes it upon us, doesn't he? So this is instructive for, for whether you are in Christ or you're outside of Christ. For those of you who, who have not given your life to Christ, realize that making your life count on this earth begins with you committing your life to Jesus Christ, turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. We know that his grace is, God's grace is manifested in that he gave his son to die for sinners who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So there is hope for you as a sinner, no matter how terrible your background and your sins are. You're not out of the reach of the grace of God. 
And for us who know Christ, where does renewal begin? And making our lives count for the Lord as we move forward. Well, it begins in the same place, doesn't it? Repentance from sins that you know and I know that have led to you squandering your life and living unwisely. You have not kept God first. And so if you want to experience God's blessing now and, and for eternity past this present passing world, God must be first. And this is the lesson that Moses learned, that God who is eternal, who is in charge, who is holy and gracious, must be unrivaled in our hearts, that we must worship Him completely and be wholeheartedly devoted to Him, that we may be blessed by Him. Oh, beloved, we see what's going on in our world around us, right? We see the difficulties globally. We see the, where, where our country is heading. We see things happening around us. We experience our own trials and our own sufferings. In the midst of changing and challenging circumstances and situations that, we, that are always going to be a part of this present world, God, our God who is eternal, who is holy, who is in charge, and who is gracious, will grant us the power and the ability to live for His glory. Amen? Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, life is short. Life is brief. Help us to live it for your glory and for your honor and for the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Father, I remember the the words of the Lord Jesus. What will it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of my Father. Oh Lord, help us to be people who respond to your word in obedient faith. For those who do not know you this morning, I pray that, Lord, they might consider today the passing pleasures of this earthly life as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And for those of us who know you, may, Lord, we assess and evaluate our lives and count our days where we are wasting our days and squandering them instead of living them for your glory and for things that go on beyond this present world. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.